0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you, as ever, from Sapporo in Japan. Today, we'll be talking to James M. Dorsey, Senior Fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore, about his book, China and the Middle East, Venturing into the Maelstrom, which is published this year, 2018, by Paul Grave Macmillan. Now, China's rise might seem to a lot of people like old news, or at least a pretty well-established concept in in global affairs at large. But given the scale and reach of what we understand under this sort of term, it's pretty difficult to keep up with uh, every aspect of it. Now, the Middle East, uh, among those geo global locations where China is playing a greater role, perhaps gets uh, less attention at times. uh, or at the very least, it's somewhere where the role of the United States uh, and other major players, we might include Israel, Saudi Arabia and Iran, uh, as well as other places, uh, get a lot more attention than what's going on uh, in terms of China's activities. So James Dorsey has done us all a great favour here by uh, looking into this subject in detail in what is a pretty comprehensive and and, and rich uh, book presentation Um which also, I should say, uh, moves into other regions too, uh, notably South Asia, where China is also a key player. Uh, so without further ado, uh, and to get into some of the subjects treated in China and the Middle East venturing into the maelstrom, I'll say, James Dorsey, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great to have you here. Um, and I should mention for listeners, perhaps point them in the direction straight up uh, of your uh, your hosted channel, uh, the uh um, Uh, new books in Middle East and studies, which are also really worth a listen. Um, But perhaps I could begin by asking you about yourself and and where you come from. Uh, You describe yourself in the preface to the book as a a academic uh, or or someone with a mixed journalistic and uh, academic background. So perhaps you could say something about that and and how you came to uh, your position currently.
1: Well, uh, well, thank you very much for that very kind introduction Uh, Indeed, I describe myself uh, as a hackademic. Uh, Hack being a term that uh, not this generation of journalists, but my generation of journalists use to describe themselves. And to be quite honest, I liberally plagiarize a colleague who is a BBC, uh, former BBC foreign correspondent, turned communications professor at City University in London, who, in a bio of himself in an edited volume several years ago, described himself as a academic. And I thought that's a perfect fit. Uh, So my career has been more than four decades of being a foreign correspondent. And I covered uh, ethnic and religious conflict as well as geopolitics across the globe, and was based across the globe. And uh, Latin America, and Europe, and Asia, in Africa, in the United States, uh, and although a heavy emphasis on the Middle East, uh, I was based in ten countries in the Middle East, mm. some of them even twice or three times. Um, and who so were
0: you working for in these <clears throat> locations?
1: Um, you know, I I started my career off. Uh, uh, with a Dutch newspaper, and then went to the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, I did a joint stint because of expense when I was based in Kuwait for the the New York Times and the Financial Times. But the bulk of my career really was with the Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. which I left in 2006, um, when, one, Murdoch was taking over, and I didn't really want to be part of that. Uh, I also thought it was time to move on to do other things, uh, and I had just won a landmark uh, libel case in the House of Lords, which was still then the uh, Supreme Court in Britain, <clears throat> um, which actually contributed to changing British libel law.
0: What, if you don't mind my asking, was the uh, subject of this
1: case Well, I was the first ever foreign correspondent based in Saudi Arabia. So until then, what you had in Saudi Arabia was either foreign nationals working for English language publications in Saudi Arabia, who freelanced somewhat uh, uh, circumstantially so as not to expose themselves too much for for, uh, Western outlets, or you had... People coming in and out, and for a very long time, it, that was very difficult to get in. 9 uh, 11 prompted a sort of struggle within the ruling family of Saudi Arabia on how to deal and how to respond to 9 11. Uh, one faction was hardline, wanted to rally the wagons, close off, and another faction uh, wanted to open up. And that faction basically took me under their wing, one very key person, and arranged for me to be the first foreign correspondent. Uh, And as you probably recall at the time, you had a dichotomy in the way the United States administration responded to the Saudis. So you had the White House, the State Department, the uh, Pentagon, basically saying, the Saudis are cooperating with us in investigating this and in trying to combat terrorism. And you had the uh, law enforcement agencies uh, and some of the intelligence community saying, they're not cooperating at all. Um, And I did a story, took me two months to do it, in which I documented how the Saudis had, um, uh, were monitoring 150 bank accounts of very prominent Saudis, including members of the ruling family, uh, because those accounts in one way or another have been associated with funds that went to questionable entities or people. Mm. Now, the story very clearly said the monitoring was at the behest of the US, but it was not intended to generate litigation. It was intended to send a message to Saudis that and Saudi donors that they needed to know where their money was going and they needed to be more, more cautious about how that money uh, was distributed because often what happened, it was just distributed to whoever and there was no checks and balances. And the story named Names, and two of um, Saudi Arabia's most powerful businessmen took umbrage with that. And so they took me to court in in, uh, in London.
0: Oh wow! Oh, well, that sounds like a yeah certainly a pretty uh, profound engagement with. Uh, well,
1: it was my it was my sixth libel case. Right. I've, right. Had a, I've had a seventh since, which I won and changed law or procedures in Singapore. Oh, well. And I regularly have encounters with lawyers. <laughs>
0: well, uh, I suppose that's uh, at least suggestive of your getting uh, pretty uh, deeply involved with uh, what's going on uh, in the various societies where you've been uh, where you've been living. Um, so you obviously have this kind of pretty long standing and deep engagement uh, with uh, the Middle East um, as a journalist. And w- at what point did the transition towards uh, the more academic end of the um, of the academic spectrum occur?
1: Well, I got invited, (laughs) it's rather funny actually, I got invited in 2011 to join on a fellowship, the uh, Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. And it was a um, six month fellowship that I walked out of after three months, quite brutally saying, forget it. Hmm. And uh, within an hour on a Saturday evening of my walking out, I was um, asked if I would join uh, RSAS, the Roger Outland School of International Studies, as a senior fellow. And they've tolerated me ever since. I see.
0: I see. <laughs> and, uh, and and how do you see the relationship between these two worlds in which you've been involved? I mean, academia and and uh, uh, I won't call it hackery, but but uh, journalism, um, d- at times are set as... Uh, sort of juxtaposed opposites, there's been some recent discussion uh, on Twitter, for example, particularly relating to uh, Xinjiang, which I know we'll get onto during the course of this podcast about who sacrifices more and who is more constrained uh, in terms of what they can say and and who has to censor themselves more in relation to these kinds of su- uh, sensitive subjects. Um, how do you see the relationship there between the two uh, the two spheres between academia and uh, journalism?
1: Well, <clears throat> actually, I think it's evolving. For one, traditionally, I think academia looked at, looked down on journalists mm-hmm. um, and sort of sat in an ivory tower, if you wish. Uh, whereas, you know, and I, I actually had an, um, an exchange uh, at a conference uh, about two years ago which a very prominent academic whom I know very well, um, held a keynote speech that really was on current affairs rather than history or whatever. and <clears throat> but then, when I also keynoted, uh, that person attacked me well, on grounds of journalism, and I basically said, "Look, first of all, what journalism does, is it's an immediate account of current history as it happens. And in that sense, it's absolutely, you know, leave aside the, the account, you know, accountability function of the media and the fourth estate and all of those kind of concepts. That's what people use. That's what they use to understand what's happening and to respond to it. That's one. Two, most journalists in comparison to few academics put their life on the line in, in certain situations and you know i yeah you know, i said to this person i said look i have the the physical and the uh, uh, the mental scars of having covered conflict and having been on the ground with, with, as it happened for 40 years so i don't think you can discount that the reason i'm saying that it's evolving is that academia is evolving. And so the, the, um, the, the, the fault lines between being a scholar and being a public intellectual are blurring. In fact, you're starting to get universities that in terms of your evaluation no longer score you exclusively on whether or not you are uh, publishing in tier one publications, but on how popular you are on social media. How frequently you publish non-academically, or how frequently you are consulted or interviewed by media uh, as an expert. So I think that whole relationship and attitudes towards one another are, are evolving. Um, I, um, you know, I there, there are certain things that I insist on that uh, academics do, but um, maybe in a more restrained fashion or or, or not. And and obviously it's a question of resources uh, and things that they don't all do, which are, you know, I spend a good part of the year on the ground. So I travel 60 or 70% of the year and I'm talking to people in various parts of the world almost daily. In various factions, and, and some of that is difficult because of uh, uh, the circumstances in the, in the countries and regions where they uh, where they are. And my writing style remains journalistic, uh, and I I insist on that. In fact, when I uh, I learned a lot about academic publishing, which I find in and of itself onerous. But the first lesson I learned was when I submitted my first uh, uh, article to a um, tier one journal. And they came back with two peer reviews, which is a system that I have questions about, uh, and a comment by the editor. Uh, The comment by the editor was that my style was too journalistic. And so I wrote back and said, that's my style. And I'm not going to change it. So I withdraw the piece. And I got an email five minutes back later, five minutes later back saying we accept your piece. And 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 what I realized with that is that part of the onerous structure of academic publishing is that the journal knows you need to publish because your job's on the line. And the moment you take that leverage away, and I've done that repeatedly. And I've actually also changed contracts because they were onerous. Uh, uh, what I realized is once you take that leverage away, you can get quite a bit of what you want. <laughs> Interesting.
0: Yeah. So that. So I suppose. Uh, yeah. It seems you've you've, uh, you've you've got a developed a knack of uh, of negotiating the uh, the boundaries and the uh, the limits, perhaps of uh, of, of various uh, various spheres, whether it's. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: whether- I learned that at Israeli airports. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I see. Well, um, well, perhaps we'll, uh, we'll get on to uh, airports and other <clears throat> infrastructural uh, inst- installations uh, as we move on. I mean, perhaps we should really get on to the book now, China and the Middle East. Um, where did China come in, and and, and how did uh, how did this book kind of take shape?
1: Well, I, th- I think it has several roots. Uh, one was that uh, I realized in the 1990s in the immediate uh, aftermath of the uh, demise of the Soviet Union uh, at a time that I was based in Istanbul and covering uh, the Caucasus and Central Asia and was venturing into Xinjiang, that there was a greater Middle East or West Asia, if you wish, uh, that was not only populated by Arab states, uh, Iran, Turkey, Israel. And that within that... Um, greater middle east if you wish there were various worlds there was the iranian world there was a the turkic world and there was uh the arab world the other and, and and as i was realizing that and thinking about it it changed my perspective of covering of my coverage and which started in the 1970s of pakistan and afghanistan um uh, <clears throat> so those were two of the, of the uh, of the factors that shaped it but really sort of in a sense sparked the book were a series of incidents or events in 2011 during the Arab uh, popular revolts which included that China's approach towards Libya broke with the principle for the the first time at least that I uh, uh, recently recall of non-interference in the domestic affairs of others because they established relations with the Opposition National Council, didn't quite put the National Council on the same level as government, uh, but nonetheless, uh, there was frequent interaction. When Colonel Qaddafi fell, the Chinese realized that that wasn't good enough, because one of the first things that the uh, post-Qaddafi government told the Chinese is, you're all the way down on the totem pole because you were supporting the regime of Qaddafi uh, for the longest period of time. The second incident that prompted was, uh, first of all, the Chinese had to evacuate 35,000 of, the, of their nationals from Libya, which was the first time that they had to uh, have that kind of operation very far from their borders. And they had kidnappings uh, Uh, of 25 Chinese nationals in the Sinai Desert in Egypt, as well as a number of Chinese in South Sudan, and had to get them out. And there was almost an outcry at the time on Chinese social media about the fact that the government was really not prepared to protect its uh, nationals overseas who were uh, expanding in numbers exponentially as well as its mushrooming interests and investments. And then you had the um, uh, knife attacks by Uyghur militants in Xinjiang cities like Hotan and Kashgar. And the final event was a what I would call a brutal encounter between Arab businessmen and uh, <clears throat> intellectuals, uh, Chinese intellectuals, some of them uh, China-based, some of them very close to the Chinese, based at non-Chinese universities, in which the Arabs attacked the Chinese for simply looking at uh, the relationship with the Middle East as one that was, uh, again, based on the principle of win-win, was economically and trade-driven. And the uh, the Arabs businessmen were basically saying, "You are a rising superpower, if not a superpower, whether you want to recognize that or not." And that carries responsibility with it, and you have to live up to that responsibility. And the Chinese didn't really have an answer to that. And so, what all of that together, <clears throat> and then you, of course, you got uh, the Belt and Road, and um, I got. I guess, involved in that because um, I was spending a lot of time um, in Pakistan at at that moment for a book that I'm writing at the moment. And uh, obviously, this is the single largest country investment of China with all its problems in Pakistan. And so what I realized was that, one, the the greater Middle East was going to force China to, along with other things, but was gonna be one major driver of China throwing all of its fundamental foreign and defense policy principles that it has maintained for decades out the window. And we've seen that already happening, so non-interference. Um, for the first time ever, as far as I can think of, there's been a degree of public by officials Consideration of a foreign military intervention, not one that is just across the border with uh, outposts in Tajikistan or in Afghanistan, but far from the border, namely in in Syria, because of the presence of um, of Uyghurs in the last rebel-held stronghold of, of Idlib and. That the Chinese were actually considering intervening there. So all of these, and then you have the foreign military base that they established in Djibouti, and it's the first of more to come. So but in other words, all of these principles were going to go out the door. Um, so that really was then what, what drove me to sort of think about a book.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very uh kind of uh, new, new perspective, I think, it may be for many listeners. I mean, I guess when it comes to China's growing presence in the world and its um, uh, sort of, uh, yes, influence in various spheres, lots of people are looking for uh, watersheds for key moments. Um, and I think uh, coming at it from, as you highlight this, uh, post-2011 uh, Arab, Arab Spring, if we want to call it that, um, uh, events, um is a, is a new lens through which to examine sort of what, what, what uh, China's place in the world at large uh, might be evolving into. Um, so uh, you've already kind of gestured at these various p- p- components that make up the region you call the greater Middle East, uh, as you say, uh, Turkic, uh, Arab, and um, also uh, Iranian, Persian uh, components. Um, could you just say a little more about what you think makes this a region worth considering together what are the kind of uh, or or indeed whether it actually is whether it's whether it's just a shorthand um is it something that we can consider as a single region this the greater middle east um and is it the case in your perception that china sees it more more importantly as a single space
1: well i think there's several things and several ways of coming at this first of all if you define the uh Uh, the greater Middle East as stretching from Morocco and North Africa into Xinjiang, you're talking about an enormous swath of land. And even if you just took it from the Gulf to Xinjiang, you're talking about the heart of Eurasia. And if there's one thing that's happening, is we're seeing the return of a supercontinent in which the lines between Europe and Asia um, become very blurry. So in that sense, there's no way you can avoid it. Then you, of course, get the issues of what certainly the, you know, the the classical Middle East, if you wish, represents. So one, uh, but also Central Asia, which is um, enormous energy resources, oil and gas, and even if you're now getting uh, major, maybe even the United States being the largest uh, oil and gas producer, the bulk in terms of the total still comes from that swath of land. Sure. On top of that, you've got the, the geostrategic location of it on the, on the cusp between Europe, uh, Asia, and Africa. And you're seeing that in the, the the political struggles that are going on, uh, the Gulf rivalries that are expanding into the Horn of Africa, um, and you got you also have the element that at least four states—Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, and Pakistan—in one way or another claim to speak on uh, on behalf of the Muslim world. <clears throat> so um, there's there's no way that you can avoid it. And in that sense, it is a very crucial part of the, of the, of the picture. From the Chinese perspective, I think it's more complex. <clears throat> first of all, as far as I'm concerned, the Chinese do not have a Middle East policy. They articulated for the first time uh, a, uh, some sort of approach towards the Middle East in January of 2016, when they put out a uh, what was called an, uh, an Arab World Policy White Paper, <clears throat> which was published on the eve of President Xi Jinping's visit to the um, Middle East, the first by a Chinese head of state in seven years. But when you read that document, it really is a reiteration of platitudes. <clears throat> it's very much focused on economic uh cooperation uh and all the various fields and 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 win-win and what have you it doesn't articulate a position sorry it doesn't articulate a position towards the multiple issues and conflicts that we're witnessing in the middle east and i think the thing to keep in mind is you know People have moved after 2011 from calling the Arab Spring the Arab Winter. I would argue that the the Middle East is in an era of transition. It's volatile, it's brutal, it's violent, but it is in transition. We may not be sure in transition to what. And transitions historically last, last at least a quarter of a century, Sometimes up to half a century, so we're really at the beginning of this, which is where China gets into trouble. Because, uh, in my mind, at least, because uh, the pr- as a matter of principle, to me, the principle, the Chinese principle of non-interference in domestic affairs of others, is no different from U.S. policy in the region, which was support autocratic regimes to maintain stability. Uh, And, you know, whatever one thinks of George W. Bush, it was actually George W. Bush very shortly after the 9-11 attacks. And then Susan Rice, his uh, National Security Advisor and later Secretary of State, who said, we're partly responsible for this because of that support of autocracy, which is when Bush launched his uh, ill-fated democracy initiative. And the Chinese are getting it, as as Libya demonstrates, um, are going to get into that same problem. Now, that may not be immediately evident because what you've had in the Middle East, and that's why people call it the uh, the Arab winter, you've had a very forceful counter-revolution led by the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates. Which until now has been very successful, but even that you're starting to see crack.
0: Well, perhaps we can we can move on to, to some of these uh, more fine grained uh, kind of uh, m- manoeuvres and uh, and developments um, uh, slightly later on. I, I just wanted to uh, a- approach again uh, or sort of bring us back to the to the scene setting that occurs in the first couple of chapters uh, of the book the introduction and then a second chapter entitled towards a new world order you've already set the kind of stage as far as um the region that we're discussing here is concerned um but what you describe here in in terms that are very different from from the win-win and 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 sort of harmonious language of of the arab policy paper you mentioned there is uh, a, an epic battle a 21st century great game uh and, and uh, an era of, of, of fraught competition in this region so could you perhaps say more about who uh, who the players are I mean you've already mentioned them um, kind of separately but who are the key players in this uh, battle that you're discussing um, and uh, how fast are we moving towards the the new world order that you mentioned there in, that, in the title of that second chapter
1: I, I think what you well I would categorize them uh, in in essentially as at the top tier, if you wish, China, Russia, and the United States. And then you have a second tier, Japan, India, and then I'd say you have a third tier, which is Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and to some extent Israel.
0: So the, so the local the local players are in the, the third tier there, as you see it.
1: Right. So with other words, they're not... Uh, uh, first of all, their goals are different. Their goals are regional when it comes to this. Uh, they're not global, if you wish. Second of all, their interests are far more specific. And that's basically to kick one another out. So, the Saudis and the Emiratis don't like the Gutteries. Uh The Israelis are ambivalent to the galleries, but they have, on the one hand, to a degree, common interests uh, with, the, uh, with the Saudis and the Emiratis, but they also have differing interests. Um, the Iranians are, in some ways, in an advantageous position because the Iranians over the next five years are going to have a significant surplus in gas. And they will uh, have to cater, well, they, ca- they have three main clients, China, Europe, and uh, Turkey. And they will only with that surplus really be able to um, service two of the three. So how they decide to do that really is going to influence uh, the energy architecture of Eurasia in ways that the other Middle Eastern uh, players cannot do. Uh, And obviously, with uh, the U.S. withdrawal from the 2015 international agreement to curb the um, uh, Iranian nuclear program, and therefore a greater dependency of Iran on China um, because of the boycott and and China's determination alongside other signatories of the agreement to try and salvage it, Uh, China certainly is going to come out of that uh, struggle for Iranian uh, favor probably quite well. Mm, mm.
0: But is that, as you see it, a a rare sign of uh, of positive... Uh, results in the region for for China, or uh, I think at least the, the broad presentation you give is that uh, it's it's the likes of China and Russia into, of that first tier of major players that right. you are talking about who are uh, quote unquote winning currently this this game. If you like, um, is 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 China at least when it comes to uh, a rivalry or a, a competition with the United States currently in the ascendancy?
1: Well, first of all, I am not sure that China is winning. Okay. (laughs) Uh, That's one. You know, I think if you go back to the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, a guy from the Middle East in pajamas and a tea towel on his head shows up and his interlocutor's eyes start rolling with dollar signs. I think there's a bit of that now when when someone from China shows up. But you're already starting to see a backlash. So with other words, you know, the whole questions of debt trap, uh, being forced uh, to hand over critical assets uh, is starting to spark a, a, a significant criticism, and the Chinese are taking note of that. So, I don't think that we can talk about this as a pure win. Um, in fact, I would say the uh, the jury's still out um, on that. The other, I mean, that's not to say that China's relations with the Middle East are. Very good. But, uh, and, and in fact, the Chinese, you look at Saudi Arabia, for example, one of the Saudi issues that they had with the Obama and Trump administrations was that the Americans will not sell them top-level uh, killer drones. The Chinese are selling it to them, and not only selling it to them, the first Chinese military military Industry being uh, establishing a manufacturing overseas is in Saudi Arabia, and it's four killer drones. So uh, you know, on that level, relations are very close. The the you know the, the autocratic leaders in the Middle East, probably all leaders in the Middle East, uh, but certainly the autocratic leaders in the Middle East are on the one level and delighted with Trump and his policy and his anti-Iranian stance, um, his lack of interest in human rights unless it uh, 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 fits what what other things he's trying to do. But on the other hand, Trump's unpredictable and he's unreliable. And so uh, they need to hedge their bets and they need close ties to... um, to the Chinese. I think that what that means is that increasingly, China will find it difficult to stay aloof of uh, the multiple conflicts in the Middle East, and particularly the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and it, in my mind, Xinjiang is a potential powder cake. For uh, for China in terms of relations, not only with um, with with the Middle East, but with the Muslim world at large, and I think the way to look at this is, you know, you've had a over the last few decades a number of major incidents: the Salman Rushdie affair, the two thousand six Danish cartoon affair, more recently the um, Uh, evangelist preacher in Florida who burned the Qur'an in which basically there was an outcry from the Muslim world, whether it was the fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini against Rushdie or the boycott by governments of Danish goods in 2006 or protests against um, uh, the burning of the Qur'an. The thing to keep in mind is that all of these outbursts were sparked, not by governments, but by protests, particularly protests by South Asians, whether they were in Birmingham or in Pakistan, didn't matter. And uh, the uh, governments had to follow. What's happening in Xinjiang, or, or if all of these incidents were, sure, they were insulting, they were irritating. But they did not in any form or fashion threaten the faith. What's happening in Xinjiang is, in my mind, a frontal assault on the faith. And I cannot think of a comparable uh, uh, example. And probably to find one would have to go far back in history. And you have a silence. Now, I think that silence is starting to be challenged on the one hand by the United States talking about uh, sanctioning uh, officials as well as companies involved in the crackdown in Xinjiang, but it's also starting to crack in the Muslim world. So you've had first demonstrations in Bangladesh and in India. You've seen... um, uh, a senior official in uh, Prime Minister Mohammed Mahathir's uh, government in Malaysia criticized the Chinese, and since then, Anwar Ibrahim, who most probably will be the next prime minister. And so I don't see how over time the uh, the Muslim world is going to be able to remain silent. They're obviously remaining silent, I think, for two reasons. One is the Chinese don't take uh, kindly to criticism, and so they don't want to upset their relations, particularly because of the economics of it uh, with China. But also, silence gives them leverage, because in in being silent, they're enabling the Chinese. So
0: you you highlight Xinjiang there, and uh, obviously uh, this has come up before, including on... um a previous uh, podcast interview I did with Tom Cliff, and I'd point listeners in that direction uh, with regard to talking about the really grievous and uh, tragic situation uh, in, in Xinjiang, which really everyone should be paying a great deal more attention to um, with regard to locking up Uyghurs and, uh, and, and, and imprisoning them in, in re-education camps and so on. Um, but it's uh, also something that you bring out well in the book um, concerning the major players uh, in the Middle East itself, Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran, notably. Um, in terms of their historical relationship with Xinjiang, both in its own right and as a component of China, um, could you perhaps say something over t- about how uh, Iran's approach and relationship over time to Xinjiang and indeed Saudi Arabia's approach to, to the Xinjiang region and Muslims in China at large have, have, have evolved uh, over
1: the past few decades? Well, let me let me put it in a larger context. China's relationship with Saudi Arabia is new. It goes back to the late nineteen eighties. Uh, up until then, China was an atheist communist regime, like the Soviet Union was, and the Saudis wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, that changed when uh, during the Iran Iraq War uh, and, and, and the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the Chinese, the Saudis, um, very quietly for the first time bought missiles from China. And then with, obviously, as the opening in China progressed and, uh, the demise of communism in Europe, uh, formal diplomatic relations were established and that relationship evolved. The relationship with Iran is far longer, there's far more in common, Uh, there are fewer threats, and, 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 and in some ways, Iran has far more to offer the Chinese than the Saudis do. So for one, you had, you know, both of these countries were empires, and they were empires at the bookends of a massive continent. So they were not directly threatening to the, to each other. And and you have, you had a lot of contact and there's a lot of uh, depth in, in, that comes out of that. The Chinese also were, uh, uh, if you look at the ballistic missile uh, industry in Iran, it's all built on, Ch- on a Chinese template. Uh, that's how they developed their missiles. China was helpful in initiating the nuclear program in Iran. Uh, and in the context of religion, in and particularly Islam, in uh, in China, you, you know, Muslims are a small minority, the 20 million in a population of more than a billion, but they're Sunnis they're not Shiites. So religious personalization or or uh, uh, agitation was the Saudis were much more concerned about, uh, the Chinese were much more concerned about the Saudis also because they represent an ultra conservative uh, strand of Islam, whereas there are no Shias, So the Iranians weren't a problem. That's one, I think also, Keep, do keep in mind that Xinjiang relationships and, and, and ties and linguistically, culturally, ethnically are with Turkey. They're not either with Iran with the, or um, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. That's not true for the Hui Muslims um, in, in China, many of whom probably did come from Iran, but they no longer remember that. Um, so That's uh, at one level. At the other level, uh, Iran is a crucial link, land link, between China and Europe. It's a huge market, 80 million people, industrialized, even if the industry is in in decay because of the sanctions and economic mismanagement, Uh, a highly educated population um and obviously a deep sense of identity where saudi arabia has mecca and money and maybe in uh, in uh in to in lesser amounts of money given uh the financial issues that saudi arabia has so i think at the end the the the, the chinese are trying to balance that relationship And that's going to could become very difficult, Um, Mm. you know. If the you know the Americans are already trying to do that by imposing secondary sanctions, so China would Chinese companies dealing with Iran that have exposure to the United States or are dealing in U.S. dollars could get affected. But you also I've seen that uh, over the last two three years. There has been a significant amount of Saudi money going into militant and ultra conservative madrasas or religious seminaries in the Pakistani province of Balochistan. And the Saudis have drafted plans to try and destabilize Iran by um, uh, forging uh, dissent among. Iran's ethnic minorities, including the Baloch wh- who straddled the border of Iran and Pakistan. Now, those plans, it, so the building blocks are in place. Those plans remain on the drawing board. They, to the best of my knowledge, have not been taken off the drawing board, but they one day could be taken off the drawing board. And that would really strike fundamentally at Chinese interests because Balochistan is the heart of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is a crown jewel of the Belt and Road Initiative.
0: Yeah, and I, and I point listeners in the direction of that uh, that Pakistan uh, chapter in the book. Uh, you call it the Belt and Road's soft underbelly um, and uh, highlight uh, in some detail there the, the vulnerabilities that you see uh, in, in China's relationship with Pakistan and, and projects such as the Gwadar port and so on. Um, but we have perhaps uh, not sufficient time to delve into that in detail currently. Um, So I'd just like to kind of, as we move towards a close, uh, bring us back to some of the issues you were just raising there, I I think, um, when it comes to uh, the question of uh, how regional rivalries play off against one another and and how China and, in addition, the United States uh, interface with one another and with those regional rivalries in turn. Um, You highlighted at the beginning, Uh, And and actually, what emerges throughout the book is the fact that, as you say, this region is perhaps uh, an arena in which China's entire approach to foreign policy, uh, uh, historically, uh, at least on on the surface, a non-interference doctrine and so on, um, may be forced into changing. Um, And so I guess uh, this brings up the question of values, uh, and and if you consider China's belief in uh, win-win and non-interference and so on to be a sort of value, if you consider the United States' historic uh, adherence, at least, again, on paper, to human rights uh, discourse and so on, and if indeed you consider Saudi Arabia's uh, interest in uh, encouraging people to be Islamic in a certain way in this region, a sort of values-oriented stance, to what extent do you see... This 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 game or this conflict, as you term it, uh, a a collision between values per se uh, and and to what extent are those values merely being leveraged against one another for uh, naked economic uh, benefit?
1: Well, first of all, I think, yes, you know, there is a clash of values, but I don't know that 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 this is about values. As such, at least not for the Chinese. I think the Chinese, in that sense, are much more pragmatic, and it's about power, whether it's economic, geopolitical, military. Um, I don't think you know if you are, and that's where why why this why China is being forced to force to throw these principles out of the window. If you are a power with global interests. Rather than a power with only regional interests, then non-interference, uh, the belief that economics can solve everything, uh, and to a lesser extent, but nonetheless, foreign military presence are just not sustainable and not realistic. And I think you know, Ch- China, as it from the opening up, grew and expanded and became far far more powerful and with a much larger stake in what happens outside of its borders just simply because of the number of Chinese who um, uh, who live overseas I mean in, in the United Arab Emirates they are probably about 15 to 20 percent of the population. Um, and of course the massive investments, uh, none of that is sustainable. Uh, I would argue that the Trump administration is not about values, and if it's about values, it's about questionable values. But, but historically, but historically, the United States values did play a role in the United States, even if there were continuous contradictions in, on the one hand, upholding values, and on the other hand, in the policies that they were pursuing. But nonetheless. I think that that values was part of the uh, the, the U.S. ethos, if you wish. Uh, so, in that sense, I think that 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 China is forced to change, and in doing so, no longer will be able to remain aloof to all kinds of rivalries and conflicts. I think the other thing about the about Xinjiang is what you're seeing in China. I mean, Xinjiang is. Uh, we're, is first of all the harshest of a crackdown that goes far beyond Xinjiang and goes far beyond uh Muslims it's uh, a crackdown on religion and Christians are experiencing the same thing now they're not being locked up into uh, en masse into political re-education camps but nonetheless they are experiencing crackdowns with arrests, with churches being uh, torn down and other things. Uh, but Xinjiang is important also in, uh, in, in two other, three other aspects. One, it today is the most extreme 21st century Orwellian surveillance state. The Chinese are gonna uh, roll out, call it Xinjiang light in terms of a surveillance state in China itself, and where possible, and you're seeing that happen in Pakistan, uh, they're gonna try and export it. So that's one major consequence of, of Xinjiang that goes far beyond what is happening there on the ground. Uh, the second fallout is what I mentioned earlier. It's uh, reshaping uh, China's military posture. And mm. China did not decide, decided ultimately not to intervene militarily or with boots on the ground in Syria. but it's a matter of time before that starts mm. to happen. And the third fallout has to do with uh, again, with a much broader issue which is that China increasingly is trying to enlist the Chinese diaspora as its representatives, its lobbyists, and what have you. Uh, and that, if the Uyghur issue gets meshed into that, could cause social uh, societal strains in countries uh, where you have both a Chinese and an Uyghur community, or a Muslim community.
0: And I suppose my final question, as we kind of wrap up, um, is obviously you're, you're drawing a picture here of, uh, as you say, China becoming more embroiled in all of these situations and itself changing as a result. Um, and in many ways, what you're portraying, uh, unless I'm mistaken, is it, it, China inevitably getting pulled into a lot of the situations that the United States has historically found itself in, in terms of being uh, militarily entangled in in regional uh, situations and so on. Um, if, or well, as as China's emergence in in the region at large increases and deepens, um, are we building towards a situation where China simply becomes another US-like player here? Will there remain fundamental differences, as you see it, in both China's approach and the way it's perceived by by local actors uh, compared to? The US and its sort of historically uh, deeply involved role in in the greater Middle East?
1: One, I think that in principle, yes, China is going to have a very similar experience to uh, the United States in many ways. And you're seeing the rise of anti-Chinese sentiment, Um, certainly in Central Asia. Um, You've had uh, I mean, you go back to two thousand nine, when there were riots in uh, in uh, Xinjiang. The then Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, described it as genocide. You had attacks on um, on the Chinese embassy in Ankara. In fact, the picture I wanted to put on my on, on on the cover of my book, but I couldn't get the copyrights for it, was a picture of. Um, protesters in front of the um, uh, Chinese embassy in Ankara walking over a Chinese flag on the ground. Um, So that, I think you will see that. Now, having said that, China has certain advantages. It doesn't have the history of the United States in the Middle East. And so therefore it comes with a somewhat cleaner strait a cleaner slate also china has developed lobbies but those lobbies are not like in the united states often they're interest lobbies there are no ethnic lobbies in uh, in china like you have in the united states with the israeli lobby and the turkish lobby and the armenian lobby and the greek lobby and so on and so forth so in that sense china has some advantages uh, whether those advantages are sufficient to shield it from uh from drawbacks and fallout i would doubt interesting
0: well that's uh, that's a really great uh way to sort of end it i suppose with a, <laughs> with a somewhat open ended uh question around quite you know where things will uh, where things will evolve but uh, i've no doubt that uh, you'll be keeping a, a close eye on exactly how things do uh, unfold in in the coming years um so james uh, we've taken up a little of your time uh, today but uh, before we let you go perhaps i could ask uh, a question which you as a host in your turn will be well familiar with um what is it that you're up to currently
1: Well, book wise, I'm uh, finishing off two books at the same time. One is on the Pakistani Saudi relationship, or what I uh, somewhat cynically would describe as the Saudi wrecking ball in Pakistan. And the other is related to that, but much broader in the sense that it's about this, what, what people talk of uh, called Saudi funding. So, with other words, for 40 years, or more than 40 years, Saudi Arabia has uh, pumped immense amounts of money, uh, estimates are about $100 billion, into supporting financially ultra-conservative Sunni Muslim cultural, religious, and educational institutions. um, And that has... uh, not in and of itself led to extremism or political violence, but it certainly contributed and and keep in mind that uh, the mass uh, bulk of Saudi funding did not go to violent groups. Uh, It's only five countries where the Saudis have funded violence. Uh, so, uh, So that's what that second book is about. And for the rest, um, I obviously have my syndicated column and my and my blog.
0: Well, that all sort of sounds uh, sounds fantastic, and and certainly uh, where the uh, where the book projects are concerned, there are many issues there which uh, undoubtedly have a bearing on on China and uh, East Asia at large too. So I'm sure listeners will be curious to uh, to, to keep a track of, uh, of, of what you're up to in those areas. Um, so James Dorsey, uh, I'd just like to thank you very much uh, for being on the show today. Uh, it was uh, really excellent to have the chance to talk to you uh, about this fascinating subject.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Great. Uh, well, and listeners, uh,
0: thank you as ever for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. A podcast on the New Books Network. Uh, we will speak to you next time.